Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and bring a little curiosity and contemplation to meaningful, sometimes difficult conversations. I'm your host, Allison Stoner. 2.7 million square miles. It's hard to visualize, but that's approximately a similar size to the lower 48 United States. And inside of this 2.7 million square miles, you'll find 4,100 miles of river, millions of species of plants and animals, hundreds of indigenous groups, and half of the planet's remaining tropical rainforest. Nope, not talking about the U.S. anymore. This is the Amazon biome. On a daily basis, the rainforest releases 20 billion metric tons of water vapor into our atmosphere. So what does that mean? With the massive size of this ecosystem and the lush forests it encompasses, it's no surprise that the Amazon has a huge impact on global weather and has helped to regulate the Earth's oxygen and carbon cycles over the past millions and millions and millions of years. Shout out to the real MVP. This ecosystem is teeming with life and thousands of discoveries yet to be made. A 2017 World Wildlife Report revealed that on average, researchers identified a new species every two days. And then there are all the people that call the Amazon home. It is documented that there are about 500 different tribes in the Amazon who serve as stewards of the rainforest, and they have their own language and unique cultures and territory, some with contact to outsiders and others not at all. Generally speaking, they have lived in harmony with their environment for centuries, relying on the forest for food, medicine, and shelter. But the Amazon is alive and fragile, and it's struggling against human activities such as deforestation and oil and gas exploration, which we'll get into. Last year saw an alarming spike in fires intentionally set to clear land for farming and ranching purposes, something upwards of 80,000 fires last year. As more than 2 million acres burned, the survival of the plants, animals, and people of the Amazon became even more threatened. We've already lost far more than 20% of this rainforest, and we're closing in on the tipping point. So how do we find balance with our world? Well, we might start by looking to Amazon's indigenous peoples to learn how to preserve it for our future, as they've learned to do themselves prior to outside forces. We might also provide new methods of support for the nine countries that the Amazon spreads through. My guest today is longtime Amazon activist Atosa Sultani. She's the founder and president of Amazon Watch, an international NGO devoted to protecting the rainforest and advancing the rights of indigenous people. She also serves as a senior strategist for the Amazon Sacred Headwaters Initiative, working toward the establishment of a binational protected region of the Amazon to be governed by the indigenous principles of cooperation and harmony. On top of all these incredible and impactful efforts, she's also producing a documentary titled The Flow, which is about finding humanity's realignment with nature and covers topics such as biomimicry. And we've also mentioned that in other episodes. So a quick note before we dive in, I had asked several questions without this microphone turned on. So you'll hear a slight difference in audio at the beginning, but then this mic 
flips back on and everything is good to go. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Miss Atosa. Thank you, Allison. It's great to be here. And thanks for that amazing uh, intro about the Amazon. Now, I want to start with the global role of the Amazon. There's a debate or at least a conversation over whether the Amazon is truly or falsely represented as being the quote unquote lungs of the earth. We did get and spread some incorrect information by saying it generates 25% of our fresh oxygen supply because in reality, the net contribution to the oxygen that you and I breathe evens out at a lower number. However, the Amazon is still highly influential to our well-being. It helps cool the planet, stabilize rainfall cycles, preserve biodiversity. Atosa, you've expanded this description, calling it the heart of the world, as it pumps water to the rest of the planet, helping drive weather systems. What are the other ways the Amazon provides benefits to the world and influences us overtly and covertly? And feel free to to correct any false information that I just said. Thanks so much for that. Well, it's it's actually not a misnomer that it's the lungs of the world, the lungs okay. of the earth. If you you know if you see the earth as a living system, which I do, the living system of earth is actually interactive, basically carbon cycle, hydrological cycle, the conditions conducive for perpetuating life has maintained basically the same over 4 billion, almost 4 billion years. So the earth is this complex organism. It's not this dead rock in space, it's actually an organism. And that organism has these you know, interactive systems, one of which is the hydrological system and others, the carbon system cycle. And so one of the ways that the Amazon is the lungs of the earth is that it absorbs CO2 and emits oxygen. And in doing so, it creates these incredible storehouses of carbon on the earth. And so while most of the oxygen as you pointed out that is generated by the trees is also consumed in the forest itself. It's not necessarily net oxygen. Actually, I think the figure I read was 6%, the lightest, that's net oxygen, so it's still important. But really what the, the forests are doing is the forests are basically maintaining this hydrological and carbon cycle. And every time that the forest is, you know, the, you have 400 billion trees in this incredible area, the size of the continental United States, and those trees evapotranspire to make, you know, basically they, they absorb moisture and release it. That idea that they receive the rain and then release it actually creates these incredible geysers of moisture, of weather. Like every adult or every mature tree in the Amazon is estimated to generate about a thousand liters of water a day in form of vapor that it literally breathes out, sweats out into the atmosphere. And that th those, you know, those geysers, because, you know, when you go from water to vapor, you generate all that heat, all that heat and vapor are lifted up by the trees of the Amazon. They actually form these flying rivers of vapor. And these aerial atmospheric rivers are bringing moisture and rain, not only to the actual rainforest itself, the Amazon rainforest, but a portion of that is actually being lifted up through the current system, the weather patterns, and brought to the entire southern cone of South America. So like 95% of all the rain that you get in for example, Sao Paulo or Rio or Argentina or 
Chile come from the Amazon. If it wasn't for the Amazon rainforest beckoning the moisture off the Atlantic because of the low pressure system that the forest creates, beckoning that moisture, you know, having the forest basically create aerosol particles that tickle the clouds and releasing their rain, nucleate the clouds and help them release the rain, then trees lifting back up that rain many times bringing the moisture deeper and deeper and deeper into the continent until vapor clouds, these aerial rivers, bring the rain to the southern cone. And if it wasn't for that, the southern cone would be a barren desert, more like what you see in Australia or in Africa. But because of the Amazon, the South America is the green continent. And in fact, economic studies show that hydrological function of the Amazon nourishes an area that's responsible for something like 70% of the entire continent's GDP. If you believe that as a you know, measure of productivity, then the Amazon is actually doing that. And, and it's actually been measured that an area of the forest that is forest, an area of the rainforest is maybe as much as 10 to 20 degrees cooler than an area that's been cut just adjacent to that forest, like a football field or or even a concrete building or a parking lot. And so the Amazon forest is actually cooling the planet. And this, this whole system of generating heat and vapor is actually keeping the earth cooler. And what we see is that the cooling effect, even the climate models are not looking at how much the Amazon is actually air conditioning the earth, you know, it's the air conditioning for the planet. So the hydrological cycle is as, as important as the carbon cycle. And most people are you know, really clear that we need to protect the Amazon because if all those trees were cut down or burned or destroyed, if the forest was destroyed, then half of the mass of all of that vegetation is carbon that would be released into the atmosphere in just terms of CO2 and methane and other forms of greenhouse gases. And that would basically be game over for life as we know it on the planet. So we know the Amazon is critical. It's critical for that kind of, you know, basically for maintaining life, for creating conditions conducive to life. So what I call the Amazon a vital organ of Gaia, of our living earth as the earth being an organism. And so when you think about that, the carbon sequestration is critical and the emission of oxygen is critical and the emission of water vapor is critical. All of those are like both the lungs and the heart. So, you know, I just say it's a vital organ because it is actually the trees often have those branching patterns that we have in our you know, in the fibers that are in our lungs. And it just hasn't escaped me that here we are facing the corona pandemic in this moment in time. Literally last year was the biggest fire season in decades in the Amazon rainforest. And so you could see that the, you know, vital organs of our earth, first in the Amazon, but also in Australia and in California, many places we were experiencing record fires and record destruction of these forests. And then within six months of those catastrophes, of natural catastrophes, we have a you know emergence of a virus that's attacking human lungs and heart. And so hasn't escaped me that we are in this, you know, basically a mirroring happening for us to see the destruction we're causing to the organism is in fact manifesting in form of disease that's then attacking ourselves as individuals. So something to think about. And part of what I'm so passionate about why the Amazon is so critical and you know, it's not just the Amazon. Let me just say that the rainforests occur around the equator, about 1500 miles north and south of the equator is this green belt that is the tropical rainforest. 
And so that green belt around the uh, equator of the earth is like the vital organs, the life, it's most of the biodiversity of the earth and also most of the, you know, cultural diversity is measured by languages exists in that belt. So it's something really special. And as you've said in your intro introductory remarks, we've already lost half of that. And what I talk about often is that, you know, we've you know, we really need to, we really need to protect as much of what's left. And, you know, if you see that the hydrological system is dependent on standing forests of the tree, the trees make weather, they make rain, they're the rain machine, air conditioning of the planet, then the tipping point is a, is a concept that scientists have been referring to, where something around 20 to 25% of the forest cover when it's lost, that circulation system that's facilitated by the trees starts to collapse and unravel. And so what you start getting is basically over time, a move from a forest, rainforest ecosystem to a savanna and eventually drier and drier and drier towards what they call savannaization of the rainforest. And we are so close to that. We're precipitously close to reaching that point of no return to a point where the trees no longer beckon and cycle enough rain to maintain their, their rainforest. What we, we have now is we're very close to that. We could be, you know, in some parts of the Amazon, we're already there. There's evidence that in some parts of the Amazon, like in the southern part of the Amazon where deforestation has been so terrible, we're already starting to see that kind of savannaization process. But for the whole biome as a whole, maybe uh, five to 15 years is the estimates that we have been seeing, at which point we cannot stop that process of savannization. It's a positive feedback loop. And so we are very close to that from an ecological time speaking. And so what we need to do is we really need to treat every single forest and every single tree in the Amazon as sacred, critical, life support system of a living organism on which our lives depend. And so, you know, and I've also seen estimates that say, you know, we actually have to protect and restore 80 to 85% of the Amazon by 2030 if we want to avert that kind of, you know, slippery slope of the tipping point. Wow, that is a colossal amount of information and thank you so much. Excellent descriptions, incredible visualizations too. I really appreciate the concepts of, you know, the condition, air conditioning systems and, and just understanding biodiversity and these environmental issues through new analogies and, and also your holistic perspective of bringing the heart into the matter because truly how do we actually realize change, there has to be an activation of the whole organism, including our vital organs and our metaphorical symbolic heart as well. So I want to ask specifically about the forest fires. With global news focus primarily on covering the pandemic, are the fires still an ongoing issue right now? So the fires, so, you know, a lot of people think of forest fires in North America, you know, the lightning hits and the forest catches on fire and it keeps burning and burning. It's not like that in the Amazon. The Amazon is actually such a wet ecosystem. You don't, usually you don't have forest fires per se, except in the dry tropical areas, the dry edges of the Amazon that are tropical dry forests. 
But in the rest of the Amazon, you have basically a rainforest. So rainforest prevents the forest fires. So what's happening, what happened, what we see every year around the dry season, the period of a month or two where it doesn't rain every day or every few days, we have long dry spells, maybe a few weeks. In those periods, what's happening is that in the lead up to those periods, farmers, individuals, loggers, people are cutting down the forest. They're letting it dry for weeks or months. And then during the rainy season, they can actually make a fire because other times of the year, it's really hard to make a fire that big. And they're basically creating a fire that is uh, sometimes engulfing the forest that's standing. But most of the forest fires are forests that are, were cut down weeks or months uh, before that moment. So the forest fires that we're seeing in the Amazon are literally the tip of the, the proverbial fireberg, iceberg, you know, the tip of the iceberg, because the forest fires are when you actually are seeing the fires. The deforestation is what you don't see that's happening all year right now. It's happening all year and it's accelerating because of the policies of the Bolsonaro administration, the current president of Brazil. It's also accelerating because of climate, making the forest more brittle, more, more susceptible and the edges to catch on fire when it wouldn't normally. And the pandemic, yes, it's masking some of the crisis that, you know, we were, we were already in a state of emergency. You know, the Amazon was already in a state of emergency starting when Bolsonaro took office. And then all of last summer, Amazon Watch and many other groups were sounding the alarm bells saying deforestation's up, illegal deforestation's up. Most, so much of the deforestation is actually happening in protected areas and in indigenous territories. Enforcement's down. Bolsonaro came in and gutted the environmental protection budget, gutted the office of like basically field teams that are monitoring deforestation, did away with enforcement and regulation. And so it even encouraged farmers to burn the Amazon through basically saying, we've got to make the Amazon the breadbasket of the world. And we've got to make the, develop the Amazon because it's this empty place that doesn't have any value. It's like, you know, somebody woke up and said, my brain is telling my body to mine my heart and sell it for cash. You know, that's exactly what this, this is happening. This disconnect between the living biological productivity and economic productivity. So what we've seen is we were already in a state of emergency. Deforestation has been increasing and the fires last year were just, the dry season came earlier and the fires started earlier and they lasted longer because the dry season was longer. But we are now continuing that trend. There is still deforestation happening that we don't see. And I just got word in the last week that fires in the Amazon are once again starting in June, end of June, beginning of July, because dry season a little bit earlier this year. So we might even see a prolonged dry season. And all of this is pointing to the fact that scientists have been warning that the tipping point is not far away. But what I want to say about that is that, so these fires are deliberate fires to take rainforest and turn them into pasture, farmland, to log the forest, and to settle and occupy this empty forest that is seen as basically having no value. Again, speaking to all of the different components of what you're sharing, the national policies that were reversed or changed, I mean, because I'm thinking specifically to your comments about Bolsonaro, 15 years ago, Brazil 
moved to supposedly increase the rainforest protections. And, you know, you mentioned different things like the satellite monitoring and heightened law enforcement and, you know, establishing a zero deforestation campaign. And yet now the current president has instituted new policies that are causing immediate damage and completely missing the point of the interrelatedness of this entire global, you know, ecosystems and how all life is interdependent and working together. And you also mentioned different human activities. And I I wanted to ask specifically about mining, because we think of the Amazon perhaps as a major source of timber for the logging industry and, and the land for the agricultural industry, but the region offers other resources we don't hear about as much in the media, and specifically minerals and energy. How are the mining and oil and gas extraction industries impacting the rainforest on an environmental level? I would say there are all related to the, all of these industrial commodities that the forest is being exploited for are part of the same mindset of seeing the Amazon as this empty place where you only value is extracting what is there, shipping it to the global economic you know, markets, the global markets, receiving earnings from that and using that to basically lift people out of poverty or do development, this concept of development, which I think is very much, you know, something that we question, we're questioning this whole concept of progress and development. And even the Brazilian history, historically, this place has been occupied by colonizers who came in to occupy and then militarily occupy and, you know, dominate the landscape. So we've got this, we've got to look at the history, but we've come from this really occupation mentality, colonization mentality, and resources are basically just, you know, seen as this uh, free-for-all for resources. So you have different parts of the Amazon, different dynamics. In the Andes Amazon, where the Andes meets the Amazon, there's a subduction zone, the geological formations where that happens, there's happens to be oil and gas rich. Not like huge amounts of oil and gas compared to like Saudi Arabia or the Permian Basin in the United States, but still enough for oil companies for the last 40 years have been basically looking and drilling marginal reserves deep in the forest. And the wake of what they leave behind is is horrendous. I mean, I've been to many of these places where oil spills are weekly occurrence, pipelines corrode and can't really keep those pipelines maintained in the deep forest. Also, there's tectonic plates. Two uh, two months ago, there was significant rain in the Andes region where the Andes meets the Amazon in Ecuador. Landslide happened and took out a pipeline and that pipeline spilled significant amounts of oil that then affected hundreds of communities downstream, polluted their water. The flood water is basically mixed with oil, destroyed land that is productive land in the rainforest, you know, where you think it's pristine rainforest. Here you have oil now covering, you know, places where people have their gardens, their subsistence gardens. And so, yeah, so oil drilling has been a failed experiment in terms of basically huge amounts of ecological damage. It's also affected isolated and, you know, marginal communities that have been affected by contact and the oil industry, which brings in violence against women. It brings in alcoholism and prostitution. 
it brings in diseases, malaria, and also just brings in a dependency on this short-term resource, which makes everyone corrupt. We'd have to have a will of steel and morals of steel not to fall victim to the corruption that oil monies bring. And so poor governance, poor democracy. So it's not. It's been a failed experiment. It's been a colonization experiment. Then you have gold. Gold is right now seventeen hundred dollars an ounce. It's the highest price it's ever been. So there's a gold rush happening all over the Amazon, both wildcat mining, where you know illegal miners just pouring into an area where there's wild, wild west, kind of like the California gold rush. It's happening in Peru. It's happening in the indigenous territories in Brazil, the Yanomami territory, for example. And then you have massive industrial scale mining. The Brazilian government allowed a Canadian company to come and mine an area that's literally, I think it's like several, maybe I want, I want to say 30 miles of riverbed, like a huge amount of riverbed that was just granted to a Canadian company to mine for gold and, the, and, and this you know, dry riverbed, which is dry because there was a massive dam, the world's third largest dam, the Bella Monte Dam that we fought and we lost built on this river over the last decade. And so then they diverted the river, dried up the riverbed, and now they're doing mining. So you have gold mining, you have aluminum mining and iron ore mining, other minerals. For example, that dam that I was just telling you about, the Belo Moncha Dam, was built to supply, primarily supply the aluminum you know, basically mining in that basin and now the gold mining. So these are all connected. You have energy development, comes with mining, comes with roads. And this is another statistic to to tell you about, which is 80 to 90% of all deforestation happens within 10 kilometers of a road. So roads are literally what opens up the pathway of destruction in the forest. You know, basically if we can stop the roads, we can control deforestation. Roads become the pathway through which illegal logging, illegal mining happen and poaching and other kinds of colonization. And these are waves. So the first wave may be road and oil exploration trails, then gold cat mining and wild, wildlife poaching. And then farmers come from cities where they have no land and just illegally settle and homestead land cleared for agriculture because that way they can maintain they can establish a claim on that land and so this whole cycle is fueled by government policy i mean who's ultimately responsible is government policy but also global markets like consumers we contribute to all of these commodities and principally right now one of the biggest commodities i would say probably the biggest driver of deforestation in the brazilian amazon is cattle cattle ranching for beef for export under organic free range beef to European, US and Chinese markets. And so here in the United States, you know, we can go to Walmart or we can go to Costco or, or some other place and buy discounted free range beef from Brazil. And most of that beef, not all, but most of it's coming from deforested Amazon rainforest. And Brazil has now the supplier of 20% of the world's beef market. So where's that coming from? Most of that's coming from the Amazon. So, you know, where we have responsibility is through what we buy, where we put our, you know, what we buy in terms of food and also what we do with jewelry, how we, and also how we use energy, you know, where we put our money, like where do we invest? What do we invest in in terms of our savings accounts and checking accounts and where we 
credit card companies we support. And we are basically needing to make those linkages between what's happening in this remote area. Yes, corrupt governments, horrible enforcement, lack of will to do anything about the real problem, bring it back home to where we are contributing wittingly or unwittingly to that destruction. And for us to, you know, basically organize, that's a lot of the work that Amazon Watch and other organizations that I'm part of are doing. Thank you for all of that. And I want to speak a little bit to uh, the humanitarian issue side before taking a quick commercial. As we know, there are many people who are actually living in the Amazon and they began settling there thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And so it's only natural that over that vast stretch of time, these indigenous peoples built sustainable lifestyles around the rainforest as they grew to depend on it for survival, food, medicine. Knowing that our industrialized way of life is so far away from, I'll just say, our core center home, how does the indigenous way of life work in conjunction with the Amazon? What is their relationship to the earth, the values, the practices, the philosophies? Yeah, so one of the greatest uh, joys of my life, uh, one of the greatest, you know, privileges and honors of my life has been to work with Indigenous peoples over the last, you know, almost 30 years that I've been working in the Amazon. Hard to believe it's been that long, but my work with Indigenous peoples over that time has really taught me so much, so much that's helped me see the rest of the world in a whole new light about what we are doing to the earth. And it's not just a problem after problem, but that there is really a perspective issue. It's a worldview. It's, it all comes down to worldview. So just a little bit about the facts. Somewhere around 500 indigenous, distinct indigenous cultures inhabit the Amazon basin and the biome. And those cultures have basically evolved, as you said, for thousands of years in relationship to the forest. And the way that they developed their cultures in relation to the forest actually helped to increase the plant biodiversity in the Amazon. So let me just say it again. You know, most of us think when humans come somewhere, we destroy nature. In the Amazon, the way they did shifting agriculture and they would do farming for a few years in small plots and then move on every eight to 10 years. And they would create, you know, the way that they would mix wild forest and domesticate wild crops with domesticated crops and that whole interweave and the way they would do soil amendments through black earth soil amendments called terra preta. That process helped actually increase the plant biodiversity of the Amazon. So now scientists look at the satellite imagery of the Amazon and they say, this isn't just a wild rainforest that evolved without humans. This is a wild forest that mixed with orchards, very crafty orchards that indigenous peoples created through their brilliant practices and domesticated so many of the you know, plants and that interweave has created more biodiversity. So, so indigenous peoples have demonstrated that, that they can actually enhance plant biodiversity. The other thing that I would say is that indigenous peoples right now, satellite imagery is also showing that indigenous territories are some of the best conserved rainforests in the Amazon. And so even in some cases better conserved than parks because parks require enforcement and that parks, massive areas of rainforest that require enforcement to keep people out. 
versus massive area of the forest where indigenous people see the forest as sacred, as their homeland, as themselves as guardians. Like we are on this earth to be guardians of this forest. That's their sort of identity. Like that's who they see themselves as. They see themselves as guardians of the forest. They see the land as their mother, the forest, whether you call it Pachamama or, you know, very many Sira, many, many different terms that they use to call their forest as a living forest, a living ecosystem. It's alive. Just like you and me, it is alive. It is our mother. It is our home. It is the house of God. I remember I was in the Shingu fighting to stop the Belamacha Dam and uh, the Juruna say, for us, Shingu means the house of God. The river means house of our you know, creator, house of creator. And so if that's your house of creator, you're not going to desecrate it. You're not going to cut it down. Your identity is tied to maintaining the forest healthy. And, and everything's related. So, you know, you're related to the birds and the serpents and the jaguar and all of the forest animals are your relatives. Even if you might kill them for food or in self-defense, the species is your relative. You're not going to push the species to extinction, even if you might eat a, you know, eat them for dinner that day. You know, so there's that relationship of reciprocity and respect, reverence, reciprocity and respect. Something that I was blown away by is just, you know, the collectivism. The fact is that. Indigenous peoples are, are often in balance between who they are as individuals and who they are as a culture or as a family or as a community, much more than we are. We have, you know, we've, we've gone a couple hundred years away from collectivity into me culture, you know, where we see myself and what I do. And whereas they're still in a culture where they're very much about their collective identity, the collective territories, they own the land communally. Someone hunts a wild boar that they share with every family that day. They cut it up and share it with everybody in the community because they know the next day someone else will share it with them. There's this, this reciprocity and this communal worldview. When the old widow's house falls down in the range, they put out, they call it Minga, a Saturday barn raising type of day. Everybody is expected to come and help rebuild that. And the same thing with, they rotate. They go from every Saturday, a couple Saturdays a month, they're helping each other build their gardens, build their house, build their bridges, build their schools. It's very much about that culture of community collectivism something that they can teach us. So all of these practices have helped create incredibly knowledgeable, wise, you know, cultures that know how to live with the forest. And just one other thing I will say, you walk in the forest with an indigenous man. It doesn't have to be a shaman. It can just be like your adult man, 45 years old, 50 years old. You're walking in the forest. You're going, he's there with a the machete. He's like, you know, able to make a path for you. He's like, oh, you need a backpack? Let me make you one. Oh, this plant is for this. this he, he will know over 500 types of plants, how to use them, what they're good for, how to recognize them, how to propagate them, how they mix with other crops, how they basically have everything from what they make their canoes from and what they make their houses from and what is good for stomachache and what's good for backache. Just, you know, they're that connected to the forest. 
you know, when I think about modern medicine, you know, how many types of medicines would a modern doctor know how to prescribe? You know, maybe 100, 120. You know, an average person in the forest is already almost a scientist. They already know how to recognize and use four or 500 plants. And the shamans, three times that, you know, so they are. So partly what's happening right now, I would just say that contact has been violent with indigenous peoples. You know, the, the fear we're going through right now through this epidemic, global pandemic epidemic and giving each other the coronavirus and people dying, they went through that with common flus, influenza and po smallpox and many other types of diseases in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s. And every time contact happened, something like half to two thirds of an indigenous nation would perish within a decade uh, through that epidemic. So through those epidemics, I think we are, we can relate now to what they've gone through. They've been through this. And again, they're, they're going through it again. So what's happening right now is the COVID pandemic is really hitting hard, the Amazon and numbers are continuously increasing. Even in the most remote areas, I just got news that one of the most remote areas of the Peruvian Amazon where they're isolated and still uncontacted peoples, the one of the further out nearest communities to the outside world already has outbreaks of COVID. And you, you know, there's no medicine out there other than traditional medicine. So the epidemic has led to a resurgence of traditional medicine people learning the remedies of how you build your immune system, how you reduce inflammation, how you improve your lung function, how you get rid of fever. All of the, the people who are surviving is a lot of them thanks to traditional medicine because there's no doctors, no ventilators, no hospital beds. Yes. And, and speaking to having contact with the outside world, our outside lifestyle is also bringing harm and damage to their communities, not just through discrimination, but also, you know, if we're reducing the amount of resources they have access to, some groups are making contact with outsiders just to have the modern medicine that they would have used traditional methods for had we not <laughs> ruined the opportunity to use traditional methods. And so it's a, a really interesting disconnect that on a daily basis, we are just completely unaware and we generally speaking are unaware and, and not concerned about how our choices truly affect everyone else on this planet. And you mentioned that the, the pandemic is causing greater vulnerability in indigenous groups. And so that's something that I think we all can, can take a moment to research on our own during this quick commercial break. And when we come back, we will dive into a, a couple more topics and you know let you move on with the rest of your day. So be right back. Welcome back. We are here chatting about all things Amazon biome and learning new ways of living and being and operating from indigenous peoples. Of course, their voices are not a monolith. Each culture is rich with its own ways of operating and interacting with their environment. So I wanted to ask a little bit about medicinal opportunities. Pharmaceutical breakthroughs often come from new discoveries found in our plant, marine, and microbial biomass sources. And with such an extensive amount of biodiversity in the Amazon, these discoveries can only be possible through the preservation of the rainforest. And so pharmaceutical discoveries could be 
big financial opportunities for the region, yet could also be environmentally detrimental if not closely monitored. Do you see pharmaceuticals, ironically, as a potential solution in slowing deforestation? You know, and what are the hurdles in shifting the economy to to lean more into Amazon's medicinal resources? So, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, indigenous peoples, as I was mentioning, have this tremendous knowledge system, not just wisdom, but knowledge system and knowledge of plants, how they use them, what they're good for. And really that knowledge system basically has been the source of much of the pharmaceutical discoveries. In fact, uh, you know, if you look at statistics, I think is 25% of all modern pharmaceuticals come from rainforest you know, plants, not just in the Amazon, but all rainforests. And how do scientists get those knowledge from the plants? They go through indigenous people who often developed the, that knowledge over thousands, thousands of years of living in that forest, trial and error, coming across, you know, this plant's good for this. And so, you know, I do think that the knowledge, the, the problem is that often the because of the global you know, economic system and capitalism, you have pharmaceutical companies that take that knowledge, steal that knowledge, and create patents on it and do synthetic compounds that model those molecules, but aren't necessarily dependent on those molecules directly, and then make a profit, share none of it with the forest or the knowledge holders that it came from. And that extractive system in the pharmaceutical business is the same, same model, same, you know, different, different uh, industry, same model. So that needs to change. But I do think the fact is that only 5% of all plants in the Amazon have been identified so far. We still have, you know, countless more to go to this, uh, new discoveries, as you mentioned, every week, there's more discoveries. And then medicinal qualities of those plants, not even 0.1% of those plants have been studied for their medicinal qualities. One of the things we've been saying about how the economy needs to move beyond extractive industries, commodities and consumption economies to caring economies, economies that focus on health of people, health of ecosystems and health, health of the whole planet. So planetary health, ecosystem health, community health, our own individual health are all part of the new paradigm of where we can be going post-pandemic, post-recovery. And in such a world, we could have economies based on investigating the medicinal values of plants with indigenous scientists at the helm and also with protection for their knowledge and their you know, receiving of benefits, sharing the benefits with the people and the forest and the ecosystem. And really in this caring and sharing economy, we'd have to really make the economy focus, be just and life-centric. Right now we have an unjust economic system that's life blind. And so to transfer that to a system that is, you know, basically you could, we are actually in the sacred headwaters of the Amazon where I'm working with 25 indigenous nations in Ecuador and Northern Peru along two river basins called the Sacred Headwaters region. We're working there to protect of something like 75 million acres, size of Oregon, state of Oregon. And there we're looking at both how to support indigenous peoples in their livelihoods and restoration of the forest, but also how to get the economies of Ecuador and Peru 
to move beyond dependence on revenues from extractive industries. And we're looking at all kinds of really exciting, you know, transition plan, you know, planning the transition and, and looking at this rich conversation about all the myriad ways we can be inspiring and fueling the transition. And part of that requires us to shift our goals. You know, you can't change the system without changing the goals of the system. You know, where is the system going? If the, right now the system is focused on growth, GDP growth, particularly production, consumption, jobs, and basically economic indicators are the drivers. If we change the driver, if we change the goals of the system to things like well-being, harmony, longevity, you know, equality, equity, those kinds of qualitative, the qualitative measures of a flourishing ecosystem and a flourishing human community, that would change the activities that get incentivized or promoted. And so part of those activities, we've been talking a lot about economies that are based on the forest, forest knowledge, restoration of the forest, and understanding and researching the forest and how it, you know, how we can basically, basically through things like biomimicry, understanding the lessons of nature and how they can help us solve humanity's problems, which is really the subject of the film I'm working on, The Flow, this idea that, you know, actually nature has figured out how to distribute nutrients, equal, you know, equitably, elegantly, efficiently, beautifully, you know, like with creativity and figured out how to do photosynthesis, how to use, how to do chemistry, just go to your garden and see the abundance of what nature can give us. Those lessons can help address as principles and as both principles and also like chemistry can really learn a lot from nature. So this whole field of biomimicry is an exploding field. Imagine promoting that in the educational institutions and universities in the Amazon region and helping indigenous people and citizens of cities and, and urban areas of South America become schooled in biomimicry, forest regeneration techniques, and economies of, that put life first, where you can have an economy that's extractive or you can have an economy that is regenerative and if we can teach the regenerative model we could really change the way the model that what's happening there but we have to redefine you know our goals and one of the big goals is growth right growth is this mantra we have to grow the economy every year by x percent we have a growing population we need a growing economy well what's happening what people aren't seeing is yes we have greater population the economy growth in the economy is supposedly helping to deal with the growing population, but that's not what's happening. The growth in the economy is concentrating in the hands of fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer people. In fact, you have, you know, the statistic I just read is that of the money that was, was the economy grew in the last decade, something like the 93 cents out of every dollar went to the 0.1% of the most wealthy. So you're not getting growth in the economy benefiting the growth of the population. You're getting growth in the economy at the expense of nature as opposed to you know, taking nature and converting it into money. That is what's happening in who's profiting are just a few people, a few handful of people, percentage of people. And so what we need to change is we need to basically change that model. We need to change the growth, the quantitative growth model to a qualitative growth model 
So we want growth, but we want growth in happiness. We want growth in peace. We want growth in health, healthy people. We want growth in food systems that are nourishing and aren't giving us glyphosate that's killing us and making us more susceptible to things like COVID. So the paradigm shift that we're really exploring in the sacred headwaters is this, you know, degrowth and biomimicry and uh, self-reliant caring and sharing well-being economies that are focused on regeneration. And we need to all just, you know, that's a, that's something that I think we are just all facing right now in this pandemic. We're all thinking about that. We're all thinking about health. We're all thinking about livelihoods. The fact is we can't work right now, many of us. And so what do we do with our creative energy? How do we come out of this pandemic with a much clearer perspective on where we go from here? And I think Indigenous peoples have that vision. They can, they can kind of palpably tell you that it's about well-being. It's about buen vivir. It's about my relationship with my family, with my village, within my ecosystem and the river basin, and all the way up to the planet, to the cosmos. And that, you know, understanding can help guide our, our future direction. I work with Indigenous peoples who have medicinal remedies that have, I've seen heal dozens of people with diabetes. And I've seen people become, you know, go into remission on cancer. I've seen also the, the plant medicine work people do, spiritual work of healing trauma or healing abuse or healing addiction through the plant psychedelic medicine like ayahuasca those things i've seen work you know there's something there there's something to explore there and let's not burn the library before we actually know the books that are there and so in this case let's not burn the medicine chest before we get what we you know what we we can from from this incredible abundance that's the creative power of, of nature Agreed. So for those of us, which I'm hoping is everyone listening, who want to dive deeper, where can we learn more about your conservation work and find you online and and also support? I would encourage people to visit, obviously, amazonwatch.org is the organization that I've founded and I'm on the board of, and it's doing amazing work all over the Amazon. Um, Basically, you can follow them on social media um, they are targeting companies and banks and financial institutions and, com- and markets where we can really have leverage through citizens raising their voices, exposing the injustice, and they're holding companies accountable. There's work that we're doing there. Actually, Amazon Watch is also part of the work we're doing in the Sacred Headwaters Initiative. That initiative, you can go to sacredheadwaters.org, learn more how we're working to sort of reimagine the future of this part of the Amazon. I also want to encourage people who can, who are in the position, whether it's $10 or $10,000 to support COVID relief right now. We have created an unprecedented coalition with Indigenous nations of the Amazon and NGOs, like there's 45 organizations working together to raise $5 million immediately for emergency relief for COVID. And then that's going to become also the vehicle to address the forest fires later when the fire season begins. It's called AmazonEmergencyFund.org. We did this beautiful live stream with 70, 80 artists and, and musicians, people like Sting and many, many, Giselle Bunch and many other people who, Barbara Streisand, Jane Fonda, who came out in support of the relief efforts for the Amazon. Beautiful live stream. You can watch it on amazonemergencyfund.org. 
And, you know, lastly, I would just say um, Pachamama Alliance, which is also another member of the coalition I'm a part of on, on the Headwaters Initiative. The Pachamama Alliance has amazing educational webinars, self-directed learning courses on everything from global ecosystems to climate, to solutions to climate change, to resilient economies, and also spiritual well-being, you know, which is something that they also incorporate in their teachings. So they have called the Game Changer intensive and the awakening the dreamer you know this idea that we have to awaken from this dream of the modern world which is the dream of the modern world is that this the american dream or whatever we want to call it that's kind of driving the planet off the cliff and so we have to kind of re reimagine that dream of the modern world so they have beautiful amazing transformational courses that people can take to kind of inspire themselves and find their own passion and purpose in this Excellent. Thank you so very much, Atosa, for joining us today and helping us get a much better understanding of the, the pressing issues of the Amazon and how everything is, is affecting each of us as well as, as the future on Earth. I really appreciate your time and I'll be sure to include all of those links in the episode description as well so everyone can have easy access. Thank you so much, Allison. So much. It's really been fun to be with you today. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. And and of course, let me know how I can continue to support and um, amplify whatever efforts you're doing across my platforms. Definitely going to check out those courses. I would love to maybe even have some of the community from Simplexity, those listening who are interested, maybe we'll do it together and, you know, work through it and have community discussions, which is an important part of transformation. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. All right, it's time for this week's mantras. I'm going to give three different affirmations and I'll repeat each twice and then leave space in the third so you can say it out loud or say it inside your own mind without me interrupting. Just consider what these affirmations mean to you. Affirmations sometimes actually will drum up resistance or you'll feel your body brace itself because you might not agree with it or it might not sync with what's going on inside. And so just notice what comes up non-judgmentally and maybe scribble down some thoughts or contemplate. All right, first, <laughs> it is time to reconsider my understanding of progress and development. It is time to reconsider my understanding of progress and development. And now your turn. I invite the principles of cooperation and harmony into my life. I invite the principles of cooperation and harmony into my life. And lastly, my values and priorities are revealed in my relationship to the planet. My values and priorities are revealed in my relationship to the planet. These conversations can be really, really difficult because they call on us to heartily consider things that we might need to change outright about our lifestyles, about our beliefs, values, etc. Um, and if you don't feel any type of way, that's, that's also fair and valid. Um, but just know that if you feel a tug when you listen to these episodes and you're like, man, I gotta, 
I gotta do something, I gotta do something. Know that you can, you can. Start today, really, really dig in and make your progress incremental and manageable. Go at a sustainable pace. Learn from others who have done it. Flood your daily experience and conversations and social media and, and everything that you interact with in a way that supports this, this growth and the newly emerging priorities and values. All right, that's enough of a diatribe from me. I will check back in with you next week for more simplexity. In the meantime, please hit subscribe if you haven't already and uh, leave a, a short little rating and review. Let us know, by us I mean me, let me know <laughs> what you think and any topics that I could include on future episodes. And I'll see you next time for Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.